I would imagine most every person who's ever lived in the South can tell you a horror story about the time they picked up what they thought to be a glass of sweet tea, but it turned out to be unsweet. It's a jarring experience, and it illustrates something important about life, that our expectations tend to color our experiences. A similar thing happens with the Bible. Some people come to Scripture with the idea that it's going to answer all of their questions. They want to imagine that the Bible's like a fortune cookie or a magic eight ball. Because of that expectation, one of two things happens. Either they find answers in the Bible where there are none, they simply read into it whatever they want, or they get frustrated because it doesn't seem to be speaking to what matters to them. Maybe you've dealt with those kinds of feelings at some point in your life. But are we expecting too much from the Bible? Or, on the other hand, is it possible that we're expecting too little? Today we're going to consider the sufficiency of Scripture. Here's a simple definition of what it means for the Bible to be sufficient. It means that the Scriptures contain everything we need to know to have eternal life and to please God. Put even more simply, the sufficiency of Scripture means that the Bible is enough. We do not need more revelation from God than we already have. Now, this truth about the Bible is one of four truths that are absolutely essential to Protestant theology. Traditionally, Protestants have maintained that the Bible has at least four fundamental attributes. It is sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. Now, the reason I point that out is because in his book, Taking God at His Word, Kevin DeYoung suggests that the sufficiency of Scripture is the one attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. DeYoung goes on to write, We can say all the right things about the Bible and even read it regularly. But when life gets difficult or just a bit boring, we look for new words, new revelation, and new experiences to bring us closer to God. I think there's some truth to that appraisal. It's not that the average church-going Christian would openly question the sufficiency of Scripture. It's just that we tend to act practically as if it were not the case. And it's ultimately a matter of authority. Do we believe that what God has said is enough, or do we think that we need to look for other experiences or other revelations that will somehow verify His Word in our minds? So let's meditate on this attribute of God's Word that what He has said to us is sufficient for us to have eternal life and to please Him. One place within Scripture itself where you can hear this claim is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So God has already granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Of course, there are some qualifications there to which we'll return in a moment. But God tells us that His Word is sufficient for eternal life and for godliness. You can hear something similar in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the fact that Scripture is breathed out by God means that it is profitable and sufficient to equip us for every good work. 
Of course, we all know very well that the Bible does not answer every single question we may pose of it. And that's not what we're claiming when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. So to help us flesh out our understanding here, I want to read a paragraph from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Over the years, Christians have found it helpful to condense the teaching of Scripture into various confessions, and the Westminster Confession is particularly thorough when it describes the sufficiency of Scripture. You can find this in chapter 1, paragraph 6. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly stated in Scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or by traditions of men. So the confession points out that we need the whole counsel of God. In other words, you cannot expect one verse or one chapter or even an entire book or testament of the Bible to be sufficient on its own. When we say that the Bible contains everything we need to know to have eternal life and to please God, we mean the Bible in its totality. Now, that does not mean, of course, that you have to know every verse of the Bible backward and forward before you can be saved or before you can live a life pleasing to God. But we don't need more than God has already said. Again, the Bible itself makes this very claim. It ends with a warning in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. God says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Another thing I want to point out about the Westminster Confession is that it says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly stated in Scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced from Scripture. In other words, some things are stated explicitly, while other aspects of God's counsel must be inferred and deduced from Scripture. I'll give you an example. The Bible nowhere uses the word Trinity. Yet, when you read the whole counsel of God, you find that there are three persons who are God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Yet, there is only one God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There are three persons, yet one God. Three in one. That is not something expressly stated in Scripture, but in the words of the Confession, by good and necessary inference, it may be deduced from Scripture. Now let's move on to the second half of the Confession's explanation of biblical sufficiency. It goes on to say, Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the, the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in His Word. We also acknowledge that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church, circumstances common to human activities and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Now, in that second half, the confession makes two important qualifications. First, to say that the Bible is sufficient is not the same as saying that we don't need the Spirit. Many people read the Bible, even study it, 
but never come to what the confession calls a saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word of God. So we need the Spirit of God who inspired the Word of God to illumine that Word in our hearts. The Spirit works by and through the Bible to bring us to a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Scriptures. It's worth pointing out here that the Spirit often works through the help of other believers. To say that the Bible is sufficient does not mean we do not need one another. Our takeaway should not be that I can go off on my own and the Bible is enough. God uses the preaching of His Word by human voices to awaken faith in us. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And when God gives instructions in Scripture to churches and pastors, what does He urge them to do? Preach the Word. Let the Word dwell richly in you. Sing the Word. Pray the Word. Share the Word with one another. One of the primary ways that God works through His sufficient Word is by working through Spirit-filled believers, helping us to hear and understand the things we're missing from the whole counsel of God. The second qualification that the confession makes is that there are some things which the Bible does not specifically address in a precise way. The examples it uses are the worship of God and the government of the church. Of course, there are many things about worship that are regulated in Scripture. For example, we are only to worship God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. We, We don't have the privilege to worship other gods besides Him. And we're also not to bow down to anything we've made or or make up our own ideas about what God is like. Beyond that, the Bible tells us to sing and pray and fellowship and receive the Lord's Supper and so on. But when you get into the specifics, there are some people who read the Scriptures and come away with the conviction that we should only sing psalms that are found in God's Word. And of course, there are disagreements over the instruments to be used or not used. And there are questions about how frequently we receive the Lord's Supper and by what method we do so. These things, the confession suggests, are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. In other words, we take the principles of Scripture and try to apply them in the most faithful ways we can according to the general rules of the Word. The confession makes a similar point about the government of the church. Some churches are governed by a presbytery or bishop. Others are governed by a group of elders within the church, and still others are governed by the congregation. Each one of those forms of church government can be and have been defended in Scripture, so we must allow one another room for conscience and Christian wisdom. And there are many, many other things besides Christian worship and the government of the church which must be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word. What ought to be clear is that the Bible simply does not speak to everything, and that's not what we claim when we describe the Bible as sufficient. If you want to learn calculus or geometry, you're not going to find it there. If you want to know where you should live or what career you should pursue, you're not going to find it there. But what you will find is that there is more than enough in God's Word for you to have a relationship with Him and for you to live a life that is pleasing to Him. To put it another way, God's Word is not sufficient to teach us calculus, but it is sufficient to teach us how to be godly, spirit-filled mathematicians. 
The Bible is not sufficient to teach us accounting, but it is sufficient to teach us how to be a Christ-like accountant who does everything above reproach and for the glory of God. The Bible is not sufficient to teach us medicine, but it is sufficient to show us how to practice medicine with empathy and with dependence on the Lord, and on and on we could go. In all the areas of our lives where God has not spoken explicitly, there is room for us to seek His wisdom in imperfect ways. So while it's not always the most satisfying answer in the short term, if you find yourself struggling with questions that seem difficult or impossible to answer, try focusing on those areas where God has spoken very clearly. Pursue godliness. Cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Pursue God's will in those ways. Listen to what God says in His Word, not because you're trying to squeeze answers out of Him, but because you want to commune with Him. Not because you're trying to discern the parts of His will that He has not yet revealed, but because you want to obey the parts of His will that He has revealed clearly and sufficiently. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.